on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Warning! This podcast contains spoilers for Batman. For uh, the Batman, for various Batman movies, live action films, and animation, and probably some Batman comics and Batman the Animated Series. If you don't want to be spoiled on various Batman properties, be careful and beware when you enter here. But thanks for listening anyway. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. Uh, This is a continuation of last week's Batman episode, lots of Batman, 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 the Batman conversations. Uh, We're going to start with news on previously on with the trailer release for Obi-Wan and more. Rosie Knight and I are going to have a really fun discussion about our, our top five Batman movies slash adaptions. We're going to be loose with that part of it. And in the hive mind, we talk to Batman executive producer, Hollywood legend, comics historian, Michael Uslan, the person who is singularly responsible in many ways for bringing Batman to the screen. Every Batman adaptation that you've seen is likely the work of Michael Uslan. And in the end game, uh, we're going to be ranking let the pearls hit the floor. Let the pearls hit the floor. We're going to be ranking our top Thomas and Martha Wayne murders. But first, joining us today, writer, comics creator extraordinaire, the great Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm so excited. This is such a cool episode. It's a really, really, Batman. really, really fun. F- Batman. Okay, let's get to the news. First up. Warner Brothers is moving around their release dates. They are changing release dates for The Flash, for Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, and more. And this is mainly due to the fact that uh, the previous release dates came into conflict with the release of the long-awaited Avatar 2. (laughs) People are clamoring in the streets. For Avatar 2, they're saying, where is the newest Avatar? Every time I go outside, people are quoting lines, those iconic lines from Avatar. You know the ones I'm talking about. There's so many quotable lines from that first movie, which is right there at top of mind, so present in our pop culture even today. Uh, The films uh, that are being moved include DC League of Super Pets is going from May 20th to July 29th. The Flash, November 4th to June 23rd, 2023. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is uh, December 16th to March 17th, 2023. This was the movie that was scheduled against the the world beating, the long-awaited Avatar 2. Wonka, in which the tagline being This Wonka Fuck, starring Timothy Chalamet, uh, goes from March 17th, 2023 to December 15th. Shazam, Fury of the Gods, December 16th. And then, folks, make two. The Trench has been slated for August 4th, 2023. 
Any reactions to this? And I know that uh, you can't wait for Avatar 2. <laughs> it's all you talk about, Rosie. I can't any wait to never see Avatar 2. <laughs> My Avatar feelings run deep. I'm sad I have to wait so long to see Aquaman. I love Ac- the first Aquaman movie. I, I, really, I did enjoy it. I really want to see the second one. Uh, I think it's fine that this is happening. This is the nature of, of these kind of things. But I do think it's really interesting because they yeah. recently released that big, you know, uh, the world needs heroes trailer and they're showing it yeah. before Batman here they're showing it after Batman in Europe um, and it's like in 2022 the world needs heroes and it's like all three of these movies that just got moved to, to next <laughs> yeah. year so I guess next year the world needs heroes but I am excited that Shazam is gonna actually get moved up to be this year's Christmas movie because I actually yeah. I, I love Shazam so now Shazam will be opening against Avatar 2 yeah I will be buying a ticket to Shazam to plant my flag. Making it a Christmas movie, I think, is is the yeah. right idea. Up next, the social media was a tizzy today with the surprise release of the first teaser trailer for Disney Plus's Obi-Wan Kenobi, which stars Ewan McGregor in the titular role, reprising his uh, role as young Obi-Wan from the prequels. First of all, Duel of the Fates is in the trailer, so that's all I needed. Uh, and... A lot of Star Wars Rebels material here, and uh, boy, the Inquisitors are here. And the Grand Inquisitor is here. This, I got really, really excited. Uh, Your reaction, Rosie? Yeah, I mean, first of all, everyone who ever got a score from John Williams is just so fucking lucky. I I think about it all the time. It doesn't matter what movie it is. It doesn't matter if it... There was a trailer recently released for a, a, a franchise I'm not so bothered about anymore. Rhymes with... Gary Trotter. And that trailer had a John Williams thing and I was like, you lucky motherfuckers. And this one is like Jewel of the Fates and you're just like, yes! Like, this is so great. Jewel of Fates, amazing. Really excited to see all the Sith Inquisitor stuff. That's some of the best stuff. Um, I think that we'll definitely talk about this more, but you mentioned like Rebels. Definitely check out those animated series. And um, the Vader comic, which we talk about a lot, that has a lot of Inquisitorious kind of stuff if you want to brush up and if you're wondering who those creepy new Sith were in the trailer. And then finally, this wasn't on our outline, but we should talk about it because you were texting me recently that a certain MCU movie is filming close to your house. (laughs) Yes. No spoilers. Okay, I think... But tell us what you know. So it was reported on in the news that Ant-Man Quantumania was filming in the LA area. And that is true. And it's true, there were some very cute pictures of Scott Lang. It looks like they were basically using the streets where they were filming as a as a front for San Francisco. And what I the way it looked from the photos that I've seen that people took was kind of like Scott is famous. So that seems yeah. to be the one thing we can tell from it. It's like Scott's famous now and Paul Rudd's doing some cute faces and everyone's looking. But it was incredibly cool to see all the setup over the weekend and just it was just really fun. Like, didn't see any stars or anything. What was the fake production name on? Okay, the it's it, so this has actually been publicly shared. So I'm not. Oh, it has. Um, okay. So I, I'm not worried about uh, breaking it. But in case you didn't know, it's Dust Bunny, <laughs> which is so cute, and I love it. Um, and that that's really cool. They film a lot in LA, so it's really easy to find out kind of what's going on. But that was a really that was a really exciting one. And yeah, Dust Bunny Dust Bunny is such a cute shooting name for that movie. All right, up next, the airlock. We are stepping out of the airlock 
and into the world of all things, the Dark Knight, the Caped Crusader, the world's greatest detective, Batman. It is time, Rosie, to rank our top five Batman adaptations, whatever that means to you, taking the comics, putting them on TV, putting them in the movies, whatever the case may be, our top five. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh, gosh. Okay. Who should go first? Um, I, I'll go first. Okay. My uh, number one uh, Batman adaptation is, gosh, I'm going to have to say The Dark Knight. I, I just think that uh, Heath Ledger is electric in the movie. There, it, 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 He obviously redefined the Joker for a whole generation of movie fans, was influenced the way the Joker was depicted in DC Comics after that, turned into a scarred, mauled mess. And in fact, like every every, uh, comics incarnation of of the Joker has in some way been impacted by Heath Ledger's incredible performance. It's my favorite Batman movie. I was blown away watching it. I remember vividly when they released like I think it was like the first five minutes of the heist portion, the first five minutes of the movie online with uh, the Joker uh, robbing the mafia bank and then double crossing all of the mobsters. And I was just like, man, I cannot wait for this movie. I vividly remember working as a waiter when Batman Begins came out. We were doing a gig at the Philadelphia Museum and this guy who I was working with was just like, Batman Begins, man. That's it. It changed everything about what we know about Batman and the movie. He just could not stop talking about it. And I was, and then I saw it and I was like, yeah, this is good. Uh, and then The Dark Knight came out and I was blown away. It felt like a moment in time at the time also with the kind of like security versus freedom conversation that was also happening in the broader culture. But I just loved it. I, and I still I still love the movie. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of the it's 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 such an unbelievable cultural touchstone. And they you know, that came out in two thousand and eight, the same year that Iron Man came out, and that is just yeah. like an unbelievable uh kind of changing point for how superheroes and cinema would interact that i am gonna shock a lot of people none of the nolan movies are actually in my top five but i'm really That's glad fine. yeah I'm, i no, i'm really glad you brought it up because it is like that is the movie that's like the movie that changed the way that hollywood saw superheroes that is the only nolan uh batman spoiler alert that is in my top five rosie who's your number one uh, batman movie i ranked this like a week ago <laughs> and it was different but it mine changes a lot um Right now, I'm back to the classic Batman 89. Okay. That's definitely, yes. that's it for me. Like my earliest memory of like being a two-year-old and sitting in my uncle's house. He lived in this high rise. And I remember I was really high up looking out the window. And in the reflection of the window, I could see the scene where the Joker falls in the acid. And it, it felt so scary. Yeah. And that is like the earliest memory I have. That's a movie that's really define my love of cinema. We're going to be speaking to Michael Uslan later, who was the producer who fought to get that made. That was one of the stories that made me want to be involved in film and, and make film. I think Keaton is such a brilliant Batman. I don't know if he's my... Oh, yeah. I, I love Robert Pattinson's Batman so much, so I'm definitely going in between on, on my faves at the moment, but Keaton is brilliant. The suit, that design of the yellow... Batman logo it was really, with the really black cool. on top that you would never believe it, but that didn't exist until that movie. It seems so synonymous, but that was a branding thing, you know? So I think that was 
incredible. You know, that was another turning point for the space of fandom and, and comic books in cinema. It became the biggest yeah. movie of all time at the time. It was... Yeah, I just I I love that movie so much. I rewatch it. Jack Nicholson obviously it's didn't even get so into that. I quote Incredible. it all the time. Incredible stunt work. Philip Tan, who is just like an absolute stunt icon, he's in that movie. He was the stunt coordinator on that movie. Um, the Joker Gang, the the jackets they have. I still live to own one of those. Like, I think it's one of the coolest movies ever made. Like when I watch it, I feel like this is so cool. Absolutely, and I remember as a kid, just like the merch being everywhere. Yes. Like, just Batman hats, Batman shirts, Batman stuff, Batman, Batman, Batman. It was it was huge, and it was one of those movies that, like, people saw two and three and four times in the theater. I still love it. It's on my top five list. And, uh, and in fact, we'll get to that in a second. But my – so my second movie is – now I'm changing it. God, fuck it. Okay. <laughs> my always I'm changing changes. It. My second my, – my number two is 1989 Batman. It's, it's – it's great. It's just great. Uh, Nicholson is absolutely incredible. Michael Keaton, I recall at the time, there being uh, Keaton was known as a comedic actor at the time. I think he was coming off of uh, Beetlejuice, uh, which was a very broad, sinister, but in a funny, humorous way kind of character. And there was a lot of there was a uh, there was a lot of doubt that he could play yeah. Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And he did it. He did it. He has a real intensity in the eyes. I love his Bruce Wayne in a lot of ways, you know, other than Pattinson. In a lot of ways, Michael Keaton is the most compelling Bruce yeah, Wayne. He has it's as so, Bruce Wayne he is. And also he laid the path for the Pattinson Bruce Wayne, because one of the best moments in that movie, you know, is when he's like, you want to get crazy? Like, he's, yeah, a crazy, crazy? Yeah. he's a crazy Bruce Wayne. He knows that he's aware of how weird it is to dress up as a bat to scare people. And it, like you said, the intensity in his eyes. I love his Bruce Wayne. I love the, you know, the the black turtleneck, which is now so synonymous with Batman. Yeah. And, and yeah, he's just, he's such a great Bruce Wayne and a great Batman. Yeah, he had a an ability to be very, very still and then all of a sudden explode with energy that yeah. was really, really compelling. And then when he did, he doesn't do it a lot, but there are like funny moments in his Batman films and he just fully has the arsenal of of comedic tools to mm -hmm. go to that place too. I absolutely love it. Who's your number two? My number two currently is actually the Batman. Matt Reeves is the Batman. We have a very we might as well we might as well keep talking about it because it's my number three. Yeah. So let's just talk <laughs> let's about the Batman the all at once. You know what? Yeah. This is a movie that I didn't expect to love the way that I was gonna love it. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely manages to feel very familiar and based in the comics, but also fresh and unique and deeply strange which i think is so powerful i think the weirdness of the movie the ensemble cast i think robert pattinson is brilliant batman i love the weirdo new young batman Absolutely. i love not seeing bruce as the playboy like obviously when you cast christian bale post american psycho that is the you think that is the so you're, only you're bruce that. wayne that's like yeah, so that's what, smart yeah. but i'd never really considered this idea of bruce as the interior strange reclusive loner that is yeah. so interesting. And it almost plays on these kind of like Batman Beyond. It almost plays on these yeah. different versions of Batman that we've seen. And we talked extensively about that last week, but I love how it takes from the animated stuff, how it takes Same. so deeply from the comics. I just, 
I think it's so great. I ranked this as my first best movie last week. My my top fives always change, but right now it's it's solidly there under 89. Okay, so that is my third. Let's go to your uh, number three, your number three. My number three is Batman Returns. I absolutely love this movie. Wow. This is like, for me, I was born in 1988. So for me, this was really like the Batman movie of my childhood that I mostly, I, I Batman 89 was my early memory and I, I remember it and I watched it, but it was very scary. But I was like a goth, like emo kid. And I definitely blame Batman Returns for that. Like that whole aesthetic, I love I love Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman in that movie. I love The Penguin is so brilliant. There's just so much greatness. And you talk about that humor of Keaton, and I think that is so there in that movie. Is, like the, yeah. the relationship between him and Selena in that movie is so fun and weird and twisted. I love the production design. That to me is like the timber and aesthetic at its best, where it's this kind of haunting carnival strangeness. Yeah, Christopher Walken in one of his oh. truly strangest fucking roles of all time. Also randomly just invented a new villain. Like yeah. that's the, the absolute <laughs> tenacity. If you did that now, people would be like, what's wrong with you? But back then they're like, here's Matt Shrek. Danny DeVito in a lot of ways oh. is kind of like the iconic Oswald Cobblepot and Michelle Pfeiffer, the, the clip of her on the set of Batman Returns whipping the heads of the mannequins off in full patent leather Catwoman costume, causing the crew to erupt into cheers. It goes uh, semi-viral basically every time there's yeah. some new Batman something. An, an iconic clip, uh, a really fun movie. Uh, that's a great pick. For my fourth pick, I am going to pick the animated version of Batman Year One. I think it's... If you'd want that Batman origin story and you've seen uh, Batman Begins, do yourself a favor. Go watch uh, either pick up uh, Batman Year One, Frank Miller, David Mazzuccelli. It's one of the landmark uh, graphic novels slash trades slash limited series in all of comics, not just the big two, not just DC. It's great, 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 great featuring some of the best art that you will ever see in your entire life. But if you want to watch it with moving pictures, go ahead and watch the animated version. All the writing's there. It's super fun. Uh, it's on HBO Max right now. If you have that, it's just one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. I think it's a really great pick because I think that the DC animated universe as we know it, where they've done these more like standalone movies, has been very popular. But actually, yeah. I do think that the animated adaptations are like a secret gem that a lot of people haven't discovered there's you know this dark knight returns like they even did a flashpoint there listen yeah. there's a ton of iconic dc uh stories that if you can't get to a comic shop you like uh, and you want to just watch them in animated form there are a lot of them mm -hmm. there there's a lot of them what is your fourth my fourth one. So I'm really showing my tastes here. So my, I love it. My it's fourth, gonna be Batman forever. No, it's actually Batman and Robin, which is Yay! my preferred. Um, I love I love Joel Schumacher. I think he's like an absolute icon. I truly, truly stand by the fact that Batman and Robin is like a brilliant Batman movie. I think the costuming, the production design, the that's my favorite version of Gotham. The the neon hued giant statues, gothic art deco craziness. Um, it's it's like reading a 
a really wild Silver Age comic. It's like Dick Sprang come to life. It's it yeah. feels so <laughs> much like Batman, and I. I know that that is so controversial and people have a lot of feelings about these movies, but I promise you, go and watch that movie and you will have fun. Whatever else you feel about it, you will have fun. Uma Thurman, Poison Ivy, iconic. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Freeze, unbelievable. Iconic. Unbelievable. Uh, you have everyone. Vivica, Vivica Fox, that's that's yeah. uh, Mr. Freeze's right-hand man. Like, this is such a fun... Chris O'Donnell and George Clooney having the most, like, homoerotic, hilarious fun. Like, Very, yeah, we're right. And now, so Clooney, Clooney later would uh, would besmirch the Batsuit uh, in hilarious fashion, but, like, this cast is amazing. It's yeah, a fun it's movie. Fun. And, and despite what, uh, what our uh, esteemed guest, Michael Uslan, will say later about the kind of campy, bang-wow flavor of Batman, it must be said, though we are very inured to a dark and gritty Batman story these days, the kind of campy, very colorful depiction of Batman was, for a long mm-hmm. time, the tone of Batman. The t- yeah. Not just, like, in the Schumacher movies, but in the comics as yeah. well. Yeah, and in Batman 66, you know, something else I think is really cool about this movie is if you really love Batman, especially if you got into it through the animated stuff or you've read a lot of the comics and collections, Batman and Robin actually has, like, an unbelievable amount of really deep cut DC characters in it as kind of, like, setting set pieces and stuff. Even the person who is is integral in... Uh, in Poison Ivy and Bane's creation is is the villain from Swamp Thing. And there's lots of fun comic booky things. I just put that movie on and you will have fun. That's my promise to you. <laughs> okay, my uh my final movie is you know what? It's very tough, but I'm going to say the TV version, Batman 66, the television show, because is it dated? Yes. Does it hold up in the sense of entertaining in the same way that a movie, uh, a modern Batman telling it it holds up? No, not really. Uh, Does Cesar Romero uh, refuse to uh, shave his mustache and thus have uh, his mustache poking out from below the Joker makeup? Of course he does. (laughs) That said, is the Bat computer one of the uh, campiest, weirdest things you've ever seen? Yes. That said... When I was a child, they would rerun that show on like some channel. I want to say like WPIX Channel 11 or something like that, like in the afternoons after I got home from school. And I would just watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it all the time. This was pre-comics. You know, I uh, the Hanna-Barbera uh, Justice League and Batman show also uh, was a big part of my uh, kind of like comics introduction before actually buying comics. But like the Batman 66 TV show, I watched a lot of when I was a kid and I really liked it. Yeah. It's actually like one of the most influential Batman storytelling devices of all time as well. Like who we know as the rogues gallery for Batman now is entirely based on that show. The Riddler had been in three issues before he was on Batman 66. Catwoman had not been in the comics for 12 years before that show because of the Comics Code of America. It it really defined the Riddler, like the way that we see him. And it really defined a lot of the ideas of what we see as Batman for better and for worse, you know? But I I think it's so fun. And especially like Eartha Kitt as Catwoman is just... Oh, man. The voice will never never leave uh, my mind. Yeah, unbelievable. Like that's another show where I'm just like, seek it out. You will have fun. And you'll also find out about a lot of weird deep cut Batman lore. I rewatched that show 
quite regularly because it's so fun. And there will still be stuff where I see a villain in an episode and a new antagonist. And I'll be like, wait, that's not from... And I look it up and it's from the comics and it's from some yeah. issue I never heard of or it got introduced later. It's kind of a treasure trove for, for Batman fans. I completely agree. What is your final one? So my final one is going to be Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, that's great. It's, you know, it's, it's arguably... Can't beat it. Objectively the best Batman adaptation of all time. Like, subjectively, this is my list, but I think a lot of people of our generation, of younger generations, of older generations, like, they know the worth and quality of that show. Like, that show changed the way people perceived Batman. It added this noir-hued texture to the story, the retro-futuristic technology, the, the exploration of Batman and Bruce as character studies, all the different iconic designs, you know, the yeah. the work of Bruce Tim and Paul Dini, two absolute creative icons in the Legends. space of Batman. That is one of the most rewatchable cartoons of all time. And if you've never sat down and watched it, you will just be blown away. There's a, there's a beautiful HD remaster that's available to stream at the moment. I believe it's on HBO Max. And it is just so bloody good. <laughs> And also, much like the uh, the X-Men animated series of the 90s, the great thing about uh, Batman, the animated series, is you get, like, yep. iconic Batman stories from the entire canon up to mm-hmm. that point done in this really kind of, like, bite-sized, half-hour animated style that is really fun. You will learn yeah. a lot about the canon of Completely. Batman from watching Batman, the animated series. They even have, like... A Dark Knight Returns, the darkest kind of Batman. They do this like imagined version of that. So that's such a brilliant point. And it's one of the things I love the most about those 90s shows, whether it's X-Men, Spider-Man, this, is this compressed little looks at these incredible arcs that have shaped the nature of these characters. And the animated series is probably the best at it. Well, that's it. Those are top five Batman adaptations. Up next, Hive Mind with special guest. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Michael Uslan. We are honored today to be joined by producer extraordinaire comics historian Michael Uslan, who has a, a very unique and indeed singular relationship with the character Batman and a really unique, again, singular perspective in what it took to bring Batman to the screen. Michael Uslan, thank you for joining us on X-Ray Vision. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, we, we do have a special relationship, me and Batman. Um, uh, I can reveal for the first time here the big secret. I do wear Batman underoos, um, <laughs> and, and Batman wears Michael Uslan underoos. So you know it's, it's, it's that kind of a relationship. Mike, I wonder if you could take us back to uh, how exactly it came to be that you, as a twenty-something year old, 
managed to obtain from DC Comics the film rights to Batman and the right to uh, negotiate those rights with with uh, with with film studios. How did that happen at that tender age? It's impossible. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's inconceivable unless unless you said it in the context of its times. So um, I'm going to take you way back for a moment. Feel free to jump in and cut sure. me off. Once I get start talking about Batman, uh, I could go on and on. But the story pretty much begins on a cold night in January 1966. I am a teenage comic book geek. Mm -hmm. I am one of the original members of comic book fandom as it was organizing. I attended the world's first ever comic book convention, which was in a flea bag hotel in New York City. (laughs) Yes, the famous, uh, famous, uh, famous event. Yeah, a very famous event. There were 200 of us at the first Comic-Con. It was a different time. By the time I graduated high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936. Wow. So, so know who you're dealing with. <laughs> Before you get started, let me, could I just ask, what was, you know, I think more people are familiar with comics culture, what it means to be a, a, a fan of comics now. What did it mean in the 50s to be a, a comics nerd? It was subversive. And I I miss that dearly. Mm -hmm. It has become so mainstream. I miss the subversiveness. Um, Understand at the time I was a little kid, Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, was in the limelight. Comic books were being blamed as being the sole cause of the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America. Probably there weren't more than three other friends of mine who were allowed to read comic books or bring them into the house. There were comic book burnings taking place reminiscent of Nazi Germany, everywhere from St. Louis to Jersey City. And uh, that was the atmosphere. The other part of the atmosphere back then is comic reading comic books and collecting comic books if you were 12 and up was considered the most uncool thing on the planet. <laughs> um, I'd go to the drugstore to buy comic books and I was like 14 or 15 and they'd look at me like I was some sort of sociopath. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And God, you know, in high school, the girls, if they found out when I was 15, 16, 17, (laughs) that I was still collecting and reading comic books, I was what I call date challenged. (laughs) Um, That's what it was like. And you know what? I almost threw in the towel in seventh grade as Mm. I discovered girls Mm. and I was getting, and my attentions were being diverted. And I began to feel that I was outgrowing comic books. And then bingo, here comes Stan Lee and Mm. Steve Ditko, and Jack Kirby, and the Marvel age. And all of a sudden, I felt like comic books were starting to grow up with me. And then came things like Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill, and the darker Batman, and Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Dead Man. And um, and my God, you know, if you ask me what were the greatest comic books ever made, it was that that group of Fantastic Fours with Galactus and Mm. Silver Surfer and Black Panther. This man, this monster, Um, you know, this this was incredible stuff. So I stuck with my comic books and felt they had stuck with me. Mm. And and that was how the journey really took place. But that's what it was like in the 50s and 60s. And and so then getting the Batman, getting the Batman rights again as a how old were you when you managed to do this? I was 28 when I bought the rights to bag. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you you'd been. uh involved in comic scholarship and being a comics historian. So could you talk a little bit about that space and kind of that journey from fan to academic to producer? Oh, okay. So you want the whole journey. You know it. 
<laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize your show was eight hours long. <laughs> it can be. <laughs> so let's get cracking. Um, so I'll take you back to January. I think it was January 12th, 1966. I'm a hardcore comic book fan. Understand that by that time, I had already met Bill Finger twice. Oh, wow. Wow. And I am probably one of only two people alive today mm -hmm. who, who met Bill Finger. Bill Finger sat with me in a sketchy bar in that Fleabag Hotel in New York City the morning <laughs> of that first Comic-Con and told me how Batman was created. Wow. Like, oh my God, you know, and I got to be friendly with Bob Kane over the years. And Jerry Robinson was one of my close friends and mentors. Jerry co-created Joker, mm -hmm. Robin, Alfred, and many of the villains. So I got all this stuff straight from the horse's mouths. And um, so it's now January, 1966. I have been waiting for months for this night because the Batman TV show is premiering. My anticipation was over the top. The show starts. <laughs> oh my God, look at this animation. It kind of looks like Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson art. Hey, it's in color. Oh, you know, somebody's spending a lot of money. These sets are extravagant. Look at the Batmobile. It's really <laughs> cool. 20 minutes in, it hits me. Oh my God, this is a comedy. Right. <laughs> They've made a joke out of Batman. The whole world is laughing at Batman. And that just killed me. So that night, at the end of that show, in our basement den, I made a vow. Just like young Bruce Wayne once made a vow. It, a, a, he, he made his vow over the bloody bodies of his parents yes. in the street. Yeah. My parents were safe upstairs. You, in the yeah, you made, your, you made your vow over the unshaved mustache of Cesar Romero under the Joker, <laughs> under the Joker makeup. Excuse me while I knock my head against the wall. <laughs> Um, I met Cesar Romero, and that's another story. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so um, I, 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 I promised myself hmm. that somehow, someday, some way, I would show the whole world what the true Batman was like. The guy created in 1939 by Bill Finger and Bob Kane is a creature of the night, mm -hmm. stalking disturbed criminals. And that these new words that were popping up in front of everybody in society, I would find a way to remove them. Pow, zap, and wham. Yeah. And that's been the <laughs> hardest thing of all, probably. Mm -hmm. So that was the vow. Uh, I look for any opportunity to get my foot in the door into the comic book industry, the movie or the animation industry. But folks, I'm a blue collar kid from New Jersey. Yeah. My dad was a stonemason. My mom was a bookkeeper. I did not come from money. I couldn't buy my way into Hollywood. I didn't have any relatives in Hollywood. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. So how do you jump the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Um, the answer began when I was a junior at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. It was the early 70s and a time of great experimentation on college campuses. Yeah. And that's all I am going to say <laughs> okay. on that matter. We got it. <laughs> um, let, let me simply add that to try to stay with the times, IU offered an experimental curriculum department. Mm. And the concept was if you had an idea for a course that had never been taught in school before in college, and could get the backing of a department on campus, you then had the right to appear before a dean and a panel of professors and pitch it. If they accepted it, even though I was just a junior, I could still teach it on campus for three hours of credit. So I said, well, the world has never seen a college course on comic books. So <laughs> I wrote up a syllabus. Comic books as a legitimate American art form is indigenous to this country as jazz. 
that comic books reflect a changing American culture because they've been published every Wednesday mm-hmm. since the mid 1930s yep. and show our lives, our philosophies, mm-hmm. our biases and our prejudices like like warts in front of a mirror. And lastly, that superheroes had become our modern day mythology. My thesis was the ancient gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt all Mm -hmm. still exist, except today they wear spandex and capes. So I went to the folklore department and I pitched them and God bless Dr. Henry Glassy. He said, said, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter if we call them Beowulf or Ulysses or Mm -hmm. Superman. It's stories of brave heroes battling the demons and dragons of the day. And you could call them King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or the Avengers or the Mm -hmm. Justice League. It's all the same. I'll back you. So I appear before the dean and he takes one look at me with my hair down to my shoulders, wearing a (laughs) Spider-Man T-shirt and says, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my (laughs) university? (laughs) Funny books. Yeah, I knew I was in deep trouble. (laughs) So I then launch into the first pitch of my career. He lets me speak for about two minutes and cuts me off. He says, Mr. Uslan, stop. He says, come on, give me a break. I read comic books when I was a little kid. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. But all comic books are are cheap entertainment for little children. Nothing more, nothing less. And I reject your theory. So this became my life-changing moment. Because I could have bowed my head in defeat and Mm -hmm. picked up my funny books and left the room. And instead, figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose, I stood my ground. I said, Dean, may I ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he says, yeah. So I said, so Dean, very, very briefly, could you just summarize the story of Moses for me? (laughs) And he goes, I don't know what game you're playing here, Mr. Uslin, but I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and send him down the river Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family that raised him as their own son. When he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he becomes a great hero. Except back then there was no soundtrack. There was no Superman Dick Donner. So I said, could you summarize the story of Superman for me? He said, you read the comic books. And he said, you know, planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kent. And then he stops, stares at me for what I swear was an eternity and says, your course is accredited. And I became the world's first college professor of comic books. Wow. So the next important thing that happened, I go back to my apartment and I am ecstatic that I pulled this off. So I called my mom back in New Jersey to tell her. And she (laughs) says, Michael, you could have the greatest creative ideas in the world, but if you don't market them, and if you don't market yourself, no one will ever know about it. Mom, very forward thinking. Uh, Yeah. Thanks, mom. Yeah. Oh, my mom, man. She, she was the mother as opposed to all my friends, mothers who actually sat down and read comic books when I was a little kid and said, there is nothing wrong with these. That's great. If you keep them neat in your room, and if you promise me you'll read books, magazines, and newspapers, and not just these things, you can keep your collection. Greatest deal I've ever made in my life, better than the DC Batman deal. <laughs> so I said, Mom, uh, I'm a junior. I have no money. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. What am I supposed to do? She goes, you're a smart boy. You'll think of something. 
So the only thing I could think of was I picked up a telephone, figuring I had nothing to lose again. And I called uh, United Press International, which back then was as big a news syndicate as the Associated Press. I asked to speak to a reporter and this poor guy gets on the phone and I started screaming at him. I said, what's wrong with you? You're not doing your job. He said, excuse me? He goes, what are you talking about? I go, what am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I just heard there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. <laughs> are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state, they're using my money to teach our children comic books? <laughs> this is outrageous. This must be a communist plot to subvert the youth of America That's and right. slam down the phone. It took this fellow three days to find out if there really was such a course <laughs> and who was the lunatic teaching it. He tracked me down does an article with photographs. It's a third of a page long, gets picked up by virtually every newspaper mm -hmm. in North America, a bunch in Europe, and my phone starts ringing and never stops. I'm invited on radio and TV talk shows. I never taught one class that wasn't filled with television cameras and reporters, NBC Nightly News, the CBS Evening News. Two weeks go by, and that was the day. I get two phone calls that day. First phone call is this exuberant male voice. Hi, is this Mike Uslin? Yeah. Hiya, Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics of New York. <laughs> I call this my burning bush moment. <laughs> I was talking to my God. He said, Mike, everywhere I look, I'm seeing you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. Mm -hmm. How can I help you? Yeah. That began my relationship with Stan Lee, who went from being my idol to my mentor, from my mentor to my friend from my friend to my creative associate. And then I had the honor of being one of the producers of his memorial at Grauman's wow. Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Wow. And we gave him the send-off he would have loved. Two hours later, the phone rings, and it's a, a very quiet male voice, adult voice. Mr. Uslin, my name is Saul Harrison. I'm vice oh. president of DC Comics in New York City. Um, he said, we've been listening to you on the radio and reading about you in magazines. You are a very innovative young man. We'd like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we might be able to work together. Uh, okay. <laughs> Geek dream come true. I'm in New York. They offer me a job at DC Comics. They, I'll be working there summers, and they put me on retainer when I go back to Indiana. Oh, wow. You know, jump in the Grand Canyon. All you can do is look for the doors that are open just that much and, and shove your foot in whenever you see an opportunity. Mm, yeah. You sit back on the couch, on the damn couch, and wait for the world to come to you, you know, it's a misguided sense of self-entitlement. Mm -hmm. you got to get up. you got to pursue your passion. you got to push it. you got to knock on doors till your knuckles bleed. That's what I learned. The Batman movie franchise is built on my bloody knuckles. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that, that's how it all began. And th that was the start of it. And that was the start of my relationship with DC Comics. This May will be 50 years wow. since I started working at DC. Unbelievable. So then take us take us from there to Batman 1989. How'd you get the rights? How did Michael Uslan become the point man between DC Comics and Hollywood and, and now Warner Brothers? All right. Now I'm going to tell you the, the true mysterious story of how this happened. <laughs> I'm working at DC. It's my first week. It's like six o'clock at night. I'm getting ready to head back to New Jersey when I hear screaming coming from down the editorial hall. I go running down. I thought somebody was being killed. It was Denny O'Neill. Wow. 
And Denny, who was like one of my two most favorite writers, extremely yeah. <laughs> favorite writers of the Silver Age and Bronze Age, and a great editor, um, he was editing The Shadow at the time, which was one of my favorite comic yeah. books. So I go, Denny, what's wrong? Are you okay? He says, no, I'm not okay. I go, what happened? He goes, well, you know, Carmine uh, Infantino, yeah. the publisher, yeah. canceled The Shadow book. And sales were, were, were off. I said, okay. And he goes, but they just got in the latest sales report and sales have spiked. So they <laughs> reinstated the book on the schedule. And in order to keep the printing press schedule, I have to have a completed script by tomorrow. And I said, you don't have a script. He says, I don't have a script. I don't even have an idea for a shadow story. I said, Denny, I have an idea for a shadow story. He said, you did? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Fake yeah, it until so you make it, right? Yeah. So what? That door was open that mm-hmm. little bit, so I shoved my foot in. He says, all right, come in, sit down, sit down. He goes, what's your idea for a shadow story? I go, well, <laughs> um, you're going to love it. It's really good. Uh, and the wheels are turning in my head. I said, you know, my girlfriend and I just came back from Niagara Falls recently, and we learned that back in the 30s and 40s when these shadow stories are set, people were going over the falls in barrels and walking across the falls on tightropes. I said, Danny, picture the shadow battling a bad guy at night on a tightrope over Niagara Falls (laughs) with the searchlights going. He goes, Michael, that's a great visual. It's a great cover. But what's this story about? I said, well, I'm glad you asked me that question. (laughs) The, The story is about smuggling sure go, yeah and yeah. what are they smuggling well I, well they are smuggling drugs <laughs> he goes michael what's the creative part of it what yeah. makes it different than all other smuggling stories I said denny i've been saving this for the last part because it's the <laughs> best part they were going over the falls back then in barrels false bottoms in the barrel that's where they put the drugs. They go over the Canadian mm. side. They wash up onto the American side. That's how they're getting it through. He says, now that's creative. He says, Michael, can you have a full script on my desk by six o'clock tomorrow night? I said, no problem. He says, go do it. I'm now a writer for DC Comics. Thank you very much. Wow. <laughs> I pull an all-nighter. The next day by 6 p.m., I turn in that script. Two weeks later, I'm walking down the halls. Again, hair down to the shoulders, you know, hippie Michael. Yeah. Who's walking toward me, but arguably the most important editor in the history of comics, Julie Schwartz. Now, Julie, for ye who do not know, um, was the editor who was the architect of returning Batman to his yeah. darker roots yeah. in the 70s. He is the one who gave us the Silver Age Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Justice League, Adam, and the list goes on and on. And and, and Julie was a curmudgeon. <laughs> you know, once he got to know him, he was a, a marshmallow. But outwardly, you know, he was like that. So I'm walking toward him. He goes, hey, kid. I go, yes, Julie. He goes, I read your shadow script. I said, you did? He goes, yeah. It didn't stink. There you go. Go, oh, thank <laughs> wow. You. Thank you so much. He said, how'd you like to take a shot at writing Batman? Whoa. I still get the chills. This dream I had since I was eight years old to one day write Batman comics came true. And I had a chance to write them with my old pal, Bob Rozakis. We wrote Detective Comics. Mm. 
which in light of this week's movie, I'm very proud to yeah, be absolutely here. right. Not of Batman comics, but of detective comics. And um, when that first issue came out, through all my tears, and there were a lot of tears, um, I panicked. I said, oh, my God, this dream I had since I was eight came true. I don't have a dream anymore. I need a new dream. And it took 10 minutes for the epiphany to hit. And I remembered back to that cold night in January 66. And I said, okay, I'm going to get the rights to Batman, the movie rights. And I'm going to make dark and serious Batman movies and show the world the true Batman. So I go back to Saul Harrison, who now has become the president Mm. at DC Comics. This is the man who mentored me in and was very fatherly toward me. I loved Saul. And I said, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and make dark and serious Batman movies. He looked like the poster of Home Alone. <laughs> it was, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. He said, don't you understand? Since Batman went off the air in television, the brand is as dead as a dodo. That's a quote, folks. Wow. What year was this about? This was 1979. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so post, post-DC implosion, and the, and uh, Batman off the air since that time. And really, yeah, like in, in terms of like the popular consciousness, certainly there was the Batman, there was the Hanna-Barbera stuff, but there wasn't a lot out there that that people could latch on to. There was the Hanna-Barbera and Filmation cartoons, mm-hmm. yeah. which were coming already at an end or coming to an end. Yeah. Um, he said, don't do this. Don't, I don't want to see you lose your money. <laughs> I said, yeah, but Saul. Nobody's ever made a dark and serious comic book superhero movie before. This could be like a whole new form of entertainment. He said, is there any way I can talk you out of this? I said, no. He shook his head. He goes, and this is another quote. Okay, schmoozle. Come on in. (laughs) And that began a six-month negotiation. During which time I realized I couldn't be representing myself in this deal because I would have said yes to anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And I found a Batman partner. He was my dad's age. He was a legend in the movie business. His name, Benjamin Melnicker. Ben, God bless Ben. Um, he started working at MGM in late 1939. Wow. A hell of a year for MGM and for movies in general. He began as general counsel at MGM, became head of their antitrust division and personally negotiated the Paramount Consent Decree of 1948 with the Attorney General of the United States, whereby the studios had to divest themselves of their movie theaters. I'm starting to understand how you got the deal that you got for Batman, Uh, the infamous uh, deal. (laughs) So um, Ben put together the deals at MGM for Ben-Hur, Dr. Zhivago, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. He negotiated with Colonel Tom Parker to bring Elvis Presley to MGM. He did Gigi and all those musicals. He was chairman of their film selection committee and on the parent board at Lowe's. All divisions reported to Ben. Remind me to tell you the story one day when Joe Barbera from Hanna-Barbera, we were at a meeting and Joe and Ben reconnected and Joe Barbera broke into tears. Mm. I mean, it, it was an amazing, amazing moment to witness. But anyway, Ben became my my partner. And after six months of negotiation, which gave us just enough time to raise the money we needed to raise, on October 3rd, 1979, we formed Bat Film Productions and we signed the contract with DC, paid the money, 
And then I said, now my life's going to be a piece of cake. <laughs> I'm going to go out to Hollywood. <laughs> Every studio is going to line up at my door. Everybody's going to see the potential here for sequels and toys and games and animation. This will be a breeze. I was turned down by every single studio and mini mm. major in Hollywood. I was told it was the worst idea they ever heard. Wow. I was told repeatedly, I was out of my mind, that you can't make dark superheroes. You can't make serious comic book movies. And for God's sake, no one's ever made a movie based on an old TV series. It's never been done. So even coming off of the success of Donner's Superman, there was no belief. In Hollywood. Zero belief. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back into a context story. Here. Yeah. So I got seriously straight from the horse's mouth at the top of the food chain at Warner Communications way back when, that the only reason they bought DC Comics was to get their hands on Superman. Wow. Because they felt Superman was the only character in the comic book world of sufficient value to be made into a blockbuster movie. Wow. Whoops. And nothing else in the DC library or anything Marvel had the, the ability to do that. Okay. So nothing else had value, but that was the times we were living wow. in. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the reasons I wound up being rejected by every studio and mini major, because who was running the studios and the agencies then? It was that generation yeah. who were all adults at the time, Frederick Wortham and Sebastian and Enos. Right. They're like comics are bad. These are disposable things that don't have any yes. value that are made to be cheap and get gotten right. rid of and nobody remembers them. And, yeah. and they look down their noses at the creators. Mm -hmm. um, they really did. You know, Stan used to tell me a story. He said, you know, back in the 50s and through the mid 60s, he would go to some fancy schmancy cocktail party in Manhattan and there'd be people around He'd get into a conversation and they would go. So, Mr. Lee, what do you do? And he said he would look at him and say, I'm a writer. And then he would quickly excuse himself and walk away. Yeah. But they would follow him and they go, oh, you're a writer. What do you write? And he said, um, I write children's literature. Mm -hmm. And then he would quickly turn around and walk away. And they would follow him. And they'd say, well, what kind of children's literature do you write? He said, I write comic books. And then they all walked away. That's what it was like. So um, that's the context of it all. So, so Dick's Superman really didn't count in mm -hmm. that regard. Mm. And uh, I learned that the hard way. So... Um, there was, there was no interest. My two favorite rejections, one was from a studio that said, Michael, you're nuts. Batman and Robin will never be successful as a movie because <laughs> the movie that's out now, Robin and Marion, hasn't done well. Mm. Now, you're too young to remember. It's the Sean Robin Connery, oh, Sean I've Connery, seen Robin. I've yeah, seen yeah I've seen it. Yeah. Sean Connery, yeah, I've seen it. It's an aging Robin Hood and Maid Marian story. Yeah. All right. So I walked out of that meeting, picking up my funny books and just getting the hell out of that room. And periodically over the next 10 years, I would go to the top of a mountain and sit in a lotus position and ponder what this guy said. <laughs> <laughs> they have the same name. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Why does, yeah, why? <laughs> the studio turned it down because they both had the word Robin in the title. Mm -hmm. There is okay. no other nexus. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, so like, you know, I could totally, I could just listen to you tell the whole story of, of the 10 years. But I guess like, what was it like for you after this rejection after rejection and hearing people say, you know, this is never going to work. What was it like for you to step onto the set? We're not even going to get into the success yet, but what was it like to you to step onto the set of 89? 
and just feel that world in a real textural space as you kind of already always dreamt of it? First, I have to set the stage for the set. Mm. We had built five square city blocks of Gotham City on the back lot of Pinewood Studios. And the first time we walked through it, Ben, who had put together the picture, uh, Ben-Hur, the deal for the picture, Ben turned to me and said, Michael, in my life, I never thought I would see sets more extravagant than Ben-Hur. He said, this has a beat. Wow. And it was, have you... It, it was walking through a dream, a lifelong dream mm. that was coming true. And I was in some ethereal kind of sense walking through it. I, I don't know that the chills ever left me. You know, as, as, as fellow comic book fans and readers, you know that sense of wonder yeah. that we all have, that comic book reading has always sparked in us? Yeah. It was that sense of wonder of an eight-year-old boy that now I'm getting emotional. This is bizarre. <laughs> Should I lay down on the couch for the rest <laughs> no, of this? No, keep going. Um, it, it, w- it, w- it was a f- lifetime fantasy come true. I don't know how else to describe it. It was amazing. And to share it and to have my wife and kids on the yeah. set. Ben, um, it was a magical time. My son was eight. My daughter was four. And Andy Smith took them for a ride through Gotham City in the Batmobile. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And my son, David, the little imp that he is, um, he had Sarah convinced, who was kind of sitting in the middle, that one of the buttons on the Batmobile was an ejector seat. And if he decided <laughs> to push it, she would shoot through the roof of the Batmobile and land on the roof of a building. She's never ridden in the middle seat of a car again. <laughs> <laughs> But there, there's one scene I have to tell you. you. You know the iconic scene up on the rooftop where Batman, where Michael Keaton grabs him and he goes, who are you? Yeah, and I'm Batman. Goes, I'm Batman. Yeah. And then tosses him, turns, and then leaps off the roof. So we were all up there on the roof. And my, my kids were with me on that rooftop that day. And Sarah, she looked like Shirley Temple. She had curls coming out everywhere. She is standing right under Michael's right elbow during that scene. (laughs) And every time I watch that scene on a big screen, I am looking at that bottom left corner, just trying to see if I can see one little (laughs) curl of her head on that. It uh, it, It was a magical, amazing time of my life. And um, when you look back on the 10 years of personal horror that I went through, which I call my human endurance contest, let me tell you something, folks. When, when you hear nothing but rejection for 10 years, yeah. the better part of 10 years, it tests your mettle as a, mm-hmm. as a human being. You've got to look deep inside yourself and go, okay, am I wrong? Right. And the rest of the world is right. And I'm just being stubborn. Or do I really, truly believe in this and believe in myself. And I kept coming up with the latter answer. And and you got to understand during this period of time, I was trying to figure out how I pay my bills next week, Mm -hmm. never mind next month. How do I keep a roof over my family's head and food on the table? And 10 years, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, I I tell everyone, close your eyes for five seconds and think of where you were 10 years ago. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, looking at it, there were these little 
pockets of things that would seem to suggest momentum towards a Batman movie. You had Frank Miller come in and really uh, just inject a jolt of energy into Batman on the comic side. Um, but over that 10 years, was there ever a point? What was what was the low point? What was the point where you were like, you know, maybe they maybe maybe nobody cares about Batman. Maybe I am the only person that actually cares about Batman this much. The lowest point came when I realized, you know, I needed to produce other things. I needed to write books and comic books and do anything I could do to bring in money and have other projects going in the interim. We had done a great, great, great miniseries for PBS American Playhouse called Three Sovereigns for Sarah with Vanessa Redgrave and Patrick McGowan. It was the true story of the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. Wow. You can find it on YouTube, actually. Um, it's 100% historically accurate because I'm a historian, I'm a history major, and that was important to me. It was another of my passions in life. Following that, CBS and Lorimar, we made a deal with them to do the same kind of treatment, 100% historically accurate, of the Alamo, the story of the Alamo. And we had a great script by the top miniseries writer. We had the top miniseries director, and we got an order to go. So I cleared the next year of my schedule because I was going down to Brackenville, Texas to line produce this thing. And it was going to take that amount of time to do it. We were, I think it was 60 days away when all of a sudden on the same day, one of the uh, heads of Lorimar and the head of programming at CBS both left their respective companies. And uh, we get a call saying, freeze everything, stopping your tracks, wait until the new management comes in and we'll get back to you. So I was in a panic, but my execs at Lorimar said, don't worry, we have an order and orders are never rescinded. And I was getting a very healthy producer fee for this, which I had already started spending. <laughs> new management came in and they killed every project of oh the my old gosh. management. Wow. I was told later that my producer fee um, was in a stamped envelope on an outbox that never showed up. And now I had cleared my schedule for the coming year of all prospects. My back was against the wall. I had no money. And the wisest man I think I've ever known, my father-in-law, Dr. Morris Osher, who founded the Cincinnati Eye Institute, flew out to New Jersey and he sat me down. He said, Michael, he and my dad actually, and they echoed each other. He said, the measure of a person's success is not by what he achieves, but by how hard he tries. He said, you have tried everything you could to get your Batman movie made, but now it's time to do why the reason you went to law school. So you would have something to fall back on. Mm. It's time to be a lawyer and take care of your family and your responsibilities and let this go. And I said, I understand that. I accept that. But I'm so frustrated because yeah. I know I'm so close to getting other projects going that will tide me over and get me to Batman. And my father-in-law said, Michael, how long? He says, and, and think hard about this. I want a real accurate answer here. How long before you have not a, not a deal, not a contract, but having your hands a check for six figures? And I thought about it and I said, five months. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I am going to pay all your bills for the next five months. Wow. And five months from today at 6 p.m., if you do not have a check for six figures in your hands, you will say, I gave it my all and give it up and mm -hmm. go be a lawyer. I thanked him profusely. 
I was already working 18 hours a day, uh, you know, so now I was working 22 hours a day. Um, and I had several projects going in, that I was trying to get going, including my first animated series, something I created called Dinosaurs, about <laughs> dinosaurs from outer yeah. space. And I was working with Deke, the animation studio back then, uh, Andy Hayward. Uh, I was working with uh, Columbia Pictures Television mm-hmm. um, through the good offices of Rick Rosen, who years later would uh, become uh, an agent of mine. Um, and these guys knew about my deadline. And they got this dinosaur sold in syndication for 65 half hours and held back the contract and the check <laughs> and, arranged, and arranged to have it FedEx to me the day my time ran out. Wow. <laughs> and sometime between noon that day and 3 p.m., a FedEx truck pulled up with the signed contracts and a check for six figures. Wow. And that's what got me to Batman. So my point here, folks, is sometimes you just simply need a guardian angel. Yeah. And I had one in the guise of my uh, in-laws. So it's the summer of 89. Batman is a smash hit. Any doubts that Michael Keaton could carry this role washed away the second you see the movie. You know, Jack Nicholson, electric as the Joker. Tim Burton, any... You know, any doubts that he'd be able to handle a, a, a character of this kind of lineage after coming off of Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice are absolutely erased. What do you say to the people who doubted you? Did they come out of the woodwork to say, Michael, hey, uh, uh, just happened yeah. to see uh, Batman in the theaters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they did. I bet they, they did. did. Um, let's see. We had opening weekend. So this would have been the Monday or Tuesday after opening weekend, we're in our offices, Ben is across from me, and the phone rings. And it's the Robin and Marion guy from 10 years ago. (laughs) Of course it's him, of course it's him. Michael, I just called to congratulate you on the success of Batman. I always said you were a visionary. (laughs) Did he say, to who? Who'd you say (laughs) that to? to? I wanna know. That's what he said. And, you know, when I hung up the phone, I turned to Ben. I said, you know, I think I now get it. If you don't believe them when they tell you how bad you are and how lousy your work is, but then you don't believe them when they start telling you how wonderful you are and how great all your work is and just believe in yourself, Mm -hmm. you'll do fine. And that was probably the the biggest lesson that came out of there. Um, We've kind of talked, so we've touched on the you mentioned Keaton and and kind of what's it been like for you to see what your tenacity and this journey that was so built on your family and people who believed on in you, what's it been like to see that spawn this multi-billion dollar franchise where you've gotten to see multiple people bring Batman to life in a, almost as many ways as he's been brought to life in the comics? People often ask me, what is my job? <laughs> And I describe it as follows. Every day I report to a sandbox and I play with my favorite toys. That's what I do for a living for 45 years now. And um, it's a wonderful thing and to, to discover your passion in life and then make it into your work. If it wasn't for how much I loved 
the comics and the superheroes in Batman, when I think of the 10 years, when I think of all the the, the things that wilted on the vine, mm. I would be in a dark room somewhere in Arkham, you know, in a very tight white <laughs> So I am fortunate. I understood early because my brother and I, we were raised to understand family first, work second, and family will always be there for you. And I never could have endured and gotten through this if I didn't have the support of my family and my friends. That was critical. I've learned just like my dad showed us, my dad was a stonemason and he had to drop wow. out of high school at age 16 to help his family survive the depression by going to work. My pop worked six days a week his entire life till he was 80 years old. Wow. And, and then only stopped because my mom took ill and he had to take care of her. My father loved what he did. He was an old world artist. He was a craftsman. You should see the fireplaces and the homes he built out of brick and marble and, and cement. And Every day he would get up before dawn, big smile on his face, couldn't wait to get to work because he loved it so much. And let me tell you, when you grow up in a house like that, how can you not want that for yourself? How can you not Mm. want to wake up on a rainy Monday morning and say, boy, I can't wait to get to work? I just had to find out what my bricks and stones were. And it became very clear early on. For me, it's comic books and movies and animation and superheroes. Um, And then from my mom, my God, um, my mom was all about perseverance and commitment. And I, I had an incident, which I detail in my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, that um, I was, I guess, about eight years old. And I was in Little League, Pee Wee League, they used to call it. And I sucked at sports, folks. Uh, okay. Uh, and I think, there, I think there's a few comic book geeks that might be able to identify with yeah, this. I think, that that's probably I think the I can I think that's, identify. I think that's the case. <laughs> So I, I suck. So I was, you know, usually one of the last ones picked uh, in a game. And we had this little league game, eight year old kids. And at the end of the game, the coach called three of us together away from where our parents could hear. And he started to scream at us. He said, you look like clowns out there. You cost you struck out three times. You cost your team the, the game. You look like clowns. Get out of my sight. And I went home. And went up into my treehouse in my backyard where I kept a stash of my comic books safely hidden under Visqueen. <laughs> and I retreated into a world of superheroes. That's the kind of thing that drove me into comic books and, and, and identifying with people like Batman. Um, that was my escape. And my mom saw that I was in trauma. And I burst out into tears. I said, I'm never going back. I hate him. I hate baseball. I hate everything. And she said, Michael, she said, listen, you are going back. She said, you don't have to go next year if you don't want, but you made a commitment to your team. And once you make a commitment, you honor it. Even though there may be some pain involved, you honor your commitment. She goes, I will talk to your coach and I guarantee you that will never, ever, ever, ever happen again. But you've got to go back and see it through to the end. And that's how my brother and I were trained. So we learned that you, you, you can't enter this industry and think it's a war and that you're going to go out and fight battles for your projects every day. Mm. I went in saying, okay, this is going to be a siege and I'm going to dig a foxhole and I'm going to put on a helmet and I'm going to hunker down. And ultimately I found out 
the most important decision you can make is who do you allow in that foxhole to watch your back? Um, over the years, I made three mistakes. Each time, it almost cost me my entire career uh, by trusting the wrong people. Thank God I had people like Ben in my life mm. and mentors like Stan and uh, so many other great people. Um, but that's what made the difference. And uh, I, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to have learned all that and have had that kind of a support system. So here you are. It's 2022. The Batman has just opened in theaters. The uh, comics are probably at their peak of influence on pop culture, uh, certainly in in North America and indeed the world. Comics as collectibles are booming. Understanding where you came from, where the comics were the outcast kind of storytelling uh, medium, uh, subversive as as you describe them what's it like now to uh, to live in this world where comics are really they're king in in many many ways and socially acceptable in a way that didn't exist even when i you know when uh-huh. i started reading comics when rosie yeah. and i started reading comics it was it was still nerdy not a thing you really talked about um but what is it like for you to see that that evolution um, it's been truly amazing. Like I say, I do miss the lack of subversiveness to it yeah. um, and how mainstream it's become in the one sense. But I realize uh, I deserve either some of the blame or credit for, what, <laughs> for, for what's happened. Um, I love the fact that comic book movies are now considered date movies. Mm, yeah. I mean, that has been turning the world on its head. One of the greatest victories of my career came when right before COVID really hit the San Diego Comic-Con Museum opened up for a preliminary weekend during uh, San Diego Comic-Con. And they began the comic book Hall of Fame. And the first character inducted into it was Batman, not Superman. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the ultimate victory. Uh That, That was absolutely inconceivable when I was a kid, that 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 could happen inconceivable. So I like that part. The other thing I like is that it has been empowering for me in a certain way, because it has given me opportunities I never would have had. For example, um, I've been invited now three times to speak at the United Nations. Mm. And each time I speak to people from all over the Middle East, I mean, here's the Jewish kid from North Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. Holding a session at the United Nations with, with, with people who speak different languages and have different politics and come from different cultures and worship different gods. And we all sit together. And as this round robin concludes, we bond because we all share this love of comics and movies and pop culture and, uh, and cartoons. And we discover we have a common bond and that through the media, of comic books and these kinds of movies and animation, we are showcasing how we're showcasing our similarities rather than what the media and the politicians are doing, mm-hmm. which is showcasing our differences. That was incredible to be able to experience, to have the opportunity to experience that. And and then I'll I'll just give you the story I used to conclude my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Um, out of the blue, I get a call from a colonel at West Point. And he said, Mr. Uslin, uh, every year the cadets vote on a cadet's choice award 
for the person or character that best exemplifies the code of honor of West Point. And this year they voted the Dark Knight. Would you consider coming up here and speaking to our cadets and accepting the award on behalf of Batman? Wow. I said, it would be my greatest honor. So my wife and I went up. It was an amazing day. Um, they said, we're going to, we'll, we'll do this during the lunchtime. And we go into the meeting hall. It's like the set of Harry Potter. <laughs> it, it could have been built by the Vikings, this stone building coming to a V with a stone balcony uh, in the center, vaulted ceilings, flags, 4,500 cadets standing at attention at their tables. And we go up there and I said, how long would you like me to speak? I said, normally I speak 30 to 45 minutes and we can do Q and A. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, lunchtime here is only 15 minutes. I say, oh, you want me to speak for 15 minutes? He says, well, no. Um, actually, we were thinking just under three minutes. And then, it, and then he hands me the award and hands me the microphone. <laughs> and I look out over 4,500 West Point cadets. And I said, cadets of West Point, when Bruce Wayne was a boy, he saw his parents murdered before his eyes on a concrete altar of blood. At that moment, he sacrificed his childhood and made a vow. He vowed that he would get the bad guy who did this, that he would get all the bad guys, even if he had to walk through hell for the rest of his life in order to honor that commitment. I said, in doing so, he became an urban warrior. He became a legend. He became the dark knight. I said, cadets of West Point, you are Batman. Wow. And with that, the place went ape crazy. <laughs> they were cheering and yelping and, oh, my God, standing on the chairs. It went on for minutes. And it, it, was, it was an amazing experience to have. But the topper came a week later. I'm at my office. I'm opening up the mail. And there's a letter from a woman. I don't know. And I'm reading the letter. Dear Mr. Uslan, you don't know me. I'm the mother of one of the cadets at West Point whom you spoke to last week. She said, um, this is all very serious business for our families. Next month, all our boys are going off to Afghanistan and Iraq. She goes, I'm not sure if you realize what you have given them. She said, but they are walking around campus right now, bouncing off each other's chests, high-fiving each other and saying, I am Batman. You are Batman. She said, in the years to come, over where, wherever they may be, whatever foreign battlefield, this will be their calling card. And she said, I can't thank you enough for that. Oh, my God, for this journey to have empowered me to be able to give back, to be able to express the power of comics and superheroes and Batman as it applies to real life superheroes in the world. My life is filled with real life superheroes. They're called my parents. They're called my teachers. They're called my mentors. And to be able to use this in a way that not only entertains people, but makes them think and inspires them. That's the great victory in this whole thing. That's the legacy. And that's what I'm most proud of. Uh, Michael Uselin, uh, it's been a real honor for uh, us to have you on the program today. Congratulations on all your success. 
Uh, congratulations on the release of the new Batman movie. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm sure there'll be much more to come. Michael Eiseland, uh, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. And don't cut me off till I do what Stanley always told me, which is get in the damn plug. <laughs> plug it. Plug what? the movie. Plug, plug it. Plug, it. plug it. all the stuff. Number one, we've got a great movie out right now. That's right. And we have my new book, which is the sequel memoir to The Boy Who Loved Batman. It's called Batman's Batman. It's now on sale through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. And um, it's also available in audiobook from Blackstone. And The Boy Who Loved Batman is now being turned into a Broadway play by the Nederlander Organization of New York wow. City. Wow. And it is being fast-tracked to open on Broadway at a date that's edging closer and closer. And it's not Batman singing and dancing, folks. It's my story, which they feel post-COVID might be inspiring and entertaining enough to make people get something out of it and enjoy it. So that's that's what's coming up. And Stan, I did it. I did it. <laughs> Uh, Michael, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks. Up next, The Endgame. Welcome to Crime Alley, where today we will rank our top Thomas and Martha Wayne murders of all time. Let the pearls hit the floor. We're leaving the theater because Bruce has a, has an upset tummy and we are entering through the fire door Crime Alley where a tragedy will take place again and again and again. This is very exciting, uh, Rosie. I can't wait to do this. So uh, it's been a very rank heavy episode, uh, but let's do it again. Our top three favorite Thomas and Martha Wayne murders, starting with number three. Rosie, what is your number three? Okay, so my number three is going to actually be the, I believe it is in Batman versus Superman. Um, the Thomas and Martha Wayne death in that is so melodramatic. Yes. With the pearls hitting the floor in Let slow the hit the floor. motion. <laughs> that to me is like, if you're going to do it, do it that way. I want to see sepia toned. I want to see pearls hitting the floor. Yes. I want to see Jeffrey Dean Morgan looking upset. Like that to me is the, that's almost like the meta text commentary on how these have been done because it's so over the top. And I love it. Fantastic. My number three is going to be Batman, uh, The Brave and the Bold, season two, episode 11, Chill of the Night. Uh, it's uh, seen and retold in really, uh, really chilling animated style. You, you can absolutely feel the horror on young Bruce Wayne's face. It's one of the best murders of Thomas and Martha Wayne it is my top three. You're uh, number two murder of Thomas and okay. Martha Wayne. If you haven't seen this, then I'm about to bless you because it's one of the funniest things that's ever been done in DC. Yes. And it is goes viral every so often. But if you haven't, go and watch it. I believe it's also on HBO Max. In the very underrated and absolutely hilarious uh, Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is an animated version of Teen Titans Go, a uh, movie that had a cinematic release, Part of the plot is that the Teen Titans decide that if no other heroes existed, they yeah. would get their own movie. That, so they go through history and they change people's origin stories. 
And so they save Batman and his family from walking down Crime Alley. And then later, when they realize they've destroyed the world, we see them go to Crime Alley and push Martha, Thomas, and Bruce into Crime Alley, where they get murdered. It is (laughs) so bleak and so hilarious. And it is just like a really great example of why that show is actually so brilliant. Because it it. is, it's the funnest, most in baseball comics fan show. So yeah, you got to watch that one. That is like a laugh out loud every time. Uh, My number two is Batman Begins. I think Christopher Nolan does something really smart with his origin story of Bruce Wayne as Batman, which is he makes sure that it's not Thomas Wayne's fault. In many, many, many versions of of this murder, Thomas Wayne is like, let's take this shortcut. Let's go. In in the Batman Begins version, uh, Bruce gets really scared. And then, in fact, Thomas is being a really, like, good dad. He's mm-hmm, been a great dad. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, you don't have to, like, uh, you, we, yeah, we spent a bundle on these tickets. But, yeah, I'm fucking rich. Like, we'll just leave. Let's get out of here. And then, instead of... Let's take this shortcut to the car through Crime Alley. What happens is they go out the side the fire door and they just happen to, to, to appear into Crime Alley. I think that's one of the most grounded, best versions in the way that it absolves Thomas Wayne of the crime of being an absolute dumbass and causing himself and his not to victim blame. <laughs> but like, listen, Gotham is not a great town Mm-mm. and you're walking into an alley Thomas you got to know better and uh, it the movie uh, very smartly absolves uh, Thomas Wayne of any of any kind of irresponsibility in the in this regard your number one Rosie uh, my number one is kind of a cheat but I do think it really counts which is Batman okay. 89 it's not Ooh. so the beginning of Batman 89 uses the retcon, it big use, retcon energy it essentially uses the cultural understanding of Martha and Thomas's murder to introduce us to the movie with a pair of parents and a kid in Gotham and it looks like they're going to get murdered and we assume it's Thomas and Martha Wayne and Bruce. And I just think that that is one of the first times that we really saw that conversation between fans and the people making these movies, like I still watch that movie and there's probably 30 seconds at the beginning every time when I just think it's Thomas and Martha, like it works so yeah. well. So we don't really see that. And obviously, like you said, big retcon, spoiler alert, in this version, Jack Napier, the Joker, is the Joe Chill character who kills, who it turns out later on killed the parents. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But that opening to me is like the most effective version we've seen of it. And it's also a really smart subversion because it's not them. So I love that one. My top murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne is the uh, the commercial, or the trailer rather, the for uh, Batman Arkham Origins. Mm. My, my least favorite Arkham game, but I mean the the... The trailer gives me chills. It is really well done in this kind of like realistic animated style that melts perfectly into the kind of cutscene style uh, of the game itself. It doesn't show the murder. It allows everything to play out on the face of the animated Bruce Wayne. So you start with a close shot of Bruce. You see Martha's hand on his shoulder. You know that his parents are behind him. And then you see the shot go off and the shell of the gun fly down. And it's a quick moment, but it is extremely, extremely impactful because it's one of the first retellings that said 
we know you know what this is and we don't have to, we're just going to give you a drop of it to let the full emotional impact uh, take hold. Uh, I, I thought it was really artfully done and st- still like a commercial slash trailer that gets me excited for a game that came out like almost 10 years ago. That's it for us. That's it for the end game. That's it for the pearls hitting the floor. That's it for <laughs> Thomas and Martha Wayne, folks. It's a wrap on them. RIP. Let us know your thoughts and use hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. Big thank you to Michael Uslin and the fantastic, brilliant Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, as Michael taught us, can't leave without the plug. That wisdom passed down to him by Stan Lee. What do you got to plug, Rosie? I've written a lot about Batman. If you want to continue this Batman joy over at Nerdist, there's a ton over there. Uh, my Instagram is Rosie Marks, M-A-R-X, uh, where you can find me talking about this podcast and sharing reviews for movies and such. Same on Letterboxd. You can check out my comics uh, at my website, rosieoliviannight.com. There's a ton of free comics on there that you can read. I wrote a really cool kids graphic novel called The Haunted High Top. So if you've got any young horror fans, you can check that out. Yeah. And we will have a big comic book announcement coming, hopefully, like at the end of this month. So that will be really fun. Folks, don't forget, if you want to learn more about what we explore in each and every episode, check out our listener's guide to all things X-ray vision in the show notes or on our website at crooked.com. Next week, we're going to be at South by Southwest talking about the multiverse and its depictions in pop culture and comics and movies and TV and such. If you have any questions that you want us to answer on that particular episode, uh, send them to the X-ray vision email Maybe we can uh, answer that on the stage at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. That episode will be coming out Friday, March 18th, as per usual, on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget, nerd out submissions. You have something great that you want people to know about. Hit us up at x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. And don't forget, five-star ratings. Five-star ratings. I can't say it enough. Five-star ratings. Give us the five-star ratings. We're legitimately on our hands, and he's begging you. Give them to us. X-Ray Vision is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Big thanks to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time. 